Well, let's take our Bibles together. We're going to be, we are in Genesis chapter 35. And our text this morning, <clears throat> I got a little bit of a tickle in my throat, so I apologize if I might squawk at some points. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 35, 1 through 15, you're going to find that on uh, 29 in the church Bible, page 29. As you're turning there, hear those pages rustling. Love that sound. Let's give our full attention to the reading of the Word of God. Genesis 35, 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and, all, and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods who were among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he had fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel, so he called its name Elon Bakuth. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall you be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I, give, that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to, spoken with him, Bethel. This is God's word. I invite you to join me in prayer as we ask for the Lord's help in this time. Let's pray. With the, the disciples, God, we say, where else will we go? You have the words of eternal life. And this book, open that this book that lies open before us, Father, we know these are your words. You have declared them to be. And because they come from your mouth, they are indeed living. They are active. They are different than any other words that we might encounter in all of the universe because they are yours. And they do things in us exactly as you ordained them to be. And so, Father, we're asking in this time of proclaiming this word that you would indeed stir in us that which is your will, that you would accomplish in us that which is your will. And we know your will ultimately includes the glorification of your own Son, our Savior Jesus, because it is his word that we are declaring. So, God, would you give us, all of us in this room, ears and hearts and minds and, and readiness 
to hear and take in what you have to say. Father, we know that the words of a mere man are not going to accomplish anything of eternal value. That is true. So we're asking that the voice, your voice, the voice of your Holy Spirit would transcend mine, that we would hear from you this morning, that Christ himself would be glorified among us. We ask it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, because of the, uh, the military, I know uh, many here may not experience it the same way that I do, but when we moved here, I think probably for the first five years, Kathy would look at me once in a while and say, when are we going home? We grew up in southern Ontario in Canada. It's been said that home is where the heart is. Well, we've lived here now 18 years. Our children and our grandchildren are all minutes from us. This is home. I don't, I don't pine to be anywhere else, except maybe in the winter when it's 20 below. A little time in Florida is not, not too bad. But, but right now, it's, it's lovely here. Now, in a few days, we're going to go back to, to Burlington in Ontario, Canada, where we grew up. Uh, we're going there for a memorial service for our nephew that recently died. It's going to be good to be together as a family. But when we go there, Kathy and I comment that it's not really home anymore. Home, indeed, is where the heart is. And for the people of God, our hearts are where God is. Because God has always planned to bring his people to himself. That's both a spiritual reality as well as a physical one. Now, as we turn our attention to the text that is before us in Genesis, the whole, the whole book of Genesis, the story of Genesis, is really the beginning, the story of the beginning of all things. And at the beginning of this story, we, we learn how God made man to dwell with him and to be in fellowship with him. He made for the man and the woman a garden in Eden, and he gave it as a home to them. Now, if we know the story... You recall the story, Adam and Eve squandered what they had been given. They did that by rebelling against God, and they had to give up their home. But God was not finished with his plan. He would bring man back home, ultimately by dealing a death blow to the very serpent that tempted them and uh, tempted them to rebel against the Lord. He would deal that death blow to the servant, thus taking away the consequence of Adam's rebellion. Now, we can see through Genesis how, how the beginning of that promise would, would unfold. As the Lord called Abraham, he told him how Eden would be restored. I'm using that word, but Canaan was really effectively the land of promise to return to, to come back home. And that land would eventually be taken from the Canaanites. Abraham, then Isaac, and now Jacob would live in that land as sojourners, really prefiguring the, the promise to be fulfilled in future generations when they would possess that land. The promise had been affirmed to Jacob. As we come to the place where we are in our text, he'd spent 20 or more years away from the land as where we are in this. He had spent 20 years away from the land in order to prepare him not only for the physical reality of occupying that land, but also 
and this is important, the spiritual reality of dwelling with the Lord. Not only would he embrace the physical reality of dwelling in the land, but the spiritual reality of dwelling with the Lord. Now, as we come to our text, the Lord has called him to come home, to come home. So through our time in, in God's word this morning, I want you to see what's part of the journey. What's part of that journey home for Jacob. But there's certainly application for us as well, because it's really for all who have faith in him, all who have been called to faith in the Lord. I want us to consider three specific observations from the text under which I trust will make some application. So these are the observations. First, obedience, then protection, and then promise fulfilled. Obedience, protection, and a promise fulfilled. First of all, obedience. When I was a kid, uh, we had a, a property that was kind of rural. We had no houses directly uh, or immediately next to ours. My brothers and I would, would go out to play. We'd fill our Saturdays and, and summer days playing at the pond or, or netting suckers in the creek or catching frogs and toads and really tormenting any wildlife that we could get our hands on. I know we were sometimes cruel. But we would easily lose track of time. It would happen all the time. And while we might have been out of sight, we could always hear my dad whistle. Now, my wife is offended by the fact that, you know, children would be called home like a dog to a whistle, but that was effective. My dad whistling through would break through and we would know it was time to come home. We had to obey that call. Now, now Jacob had been wandering in Shechem, and I use that word purposefully. You'll see why in a moment. And while he may have felt far from the Lord, the Lord called him back. Jacob was to return to the house of the Lord. And so as we seek to make the application from just this part of the text, see, to go home, we have to obey. We have to obey. You got to know the way, so you got to, that's really the call, right? You have to know the why. That's worship. And you have to know the how to obey, and that's in purity. Let me show you this from the text. First of all, Jacob heard the voice of God telling him to go back to Bethel. That's the call, the way. This is the direction. This is the location you're to go. Verse one, God said to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Now, I think I've already mentioned this, but uh, Bethel means house of God. And Bethel was the very place that the Lord met Jacob in a dream. And that was years earlier. Jacob was fleeing from Esau. And if you recall from the story, he had had, um, deceived his father into gaining his blessing, the blessing that was Esau's. Esau had resented Jacob because he effectively sold his birthright to him, but he felt like he was duped into it. And Jacob deceptively deceptively took the blessing. So Jacob was fleeing Esau. Esau had pledged to kill him. So he was on his way to to go dwell with Laban in a place called Paddan Aram. It's in Haran, basically to the north and quite a bit to the east. He was there to dwell with Laban. And we can find that in Genesis chapter 22. There at Bethel, on his way to Paddan Aram, the Lord's covenant with that the Lord had made the, co- the, the same covenant that the Lord had made with Abraham was now, and Isaac, of course, was now confirmed to Jacob 
So he learned there that his offspring would possess the land on which he was lying. This happened in a dream. That he would have this innumerable offspring and the Lord would bring him back. Again, at least 20, possibly 26 years now since that dream. Now Jacob obeyed the call to go, which is effectively to possess what God had promised to give him. He obeyed the call to go and receive what the Lord had promised to give him. So he obeyed the call. It's part of obedience. But the second part of obedience is he was called to worship. And that's really the why. The why of obedience. He's told there, make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Again, there at Bethel, that's that place, make an altar there to the God so the Lord is telling him, make an altar effectively to me. Now, the last time that Jacob was at Bethel, he had t- taken the stone that was under his head that he slept on, having had that dream, having woken up and realizing all that he experienced from the Lord, he set that up as a pillar. And what he did was he poured oil on top of it. That's Genesis 28:18. Now, a pillar is a memorial. It's not to be confused with an altar. An altar is for sacrifice. And this distinction is going to matter later. But for now, he had set up a pillar back the first time he was at Bethel. Now, I think the most important distinction uh, is that a pillar is not for worship. It's for remembrance, where an altar is for worship. In fact, if we move through the Old Testament, we see that the law In the law, the Lord had explicitly later forbidden the idea of pillars. I'll just take you to Leviticus 26.1. You shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or pillar. And you shall not set up a figured stone in your land or bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. They were not to use of a pillar as this means of worshiping the Lord. Jacob obeyed the Lord. And we see that in verse 7. There he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, slightly changing the name, God of the house of God. Well, why why the altar? Why the command to worship? Well, I would suggest to you it's because for the people of God, all of life revolves around worshiping the Lord. And this would be important to Jacob, and I think we can understand for ourselves too today as the people of God. It's so important because worship, worshiping the Lord, puts everything else in our lives in perspective. It reminds us who God is and who we are in relationship to God. It reminds us who rules, who is sovereign over all. It reminds us that God stands over all, that he makes the law. And ultimately, when when God's people are committed to worshiping him, It's a guard against false ideas and disobedience. See, we're naturally fixated on the things that we can see. We're naturally fixated on temporal, transient things. And what worship does, it helps us to to look to what is unseen, with spiritual eyes, to look to what is eternal, which is God. 2 Corinthians 4.8. Obedience involved Worship. That's the why. And brothers and sisters in Christ, I I hope that you see 
that gathering together with God's people for worship is an anchor point in your life out of which flows everything else that you do. And I can say this with, with absolute confidence. Those who profess to know God, those who profess to be believers in, in the Lord Jesus and have trusted him, they claim to trust him for salvation, who, who neglect worship, they don't look or behave like those who claim to know Christ. Their minds aren't guarded. Their priorities are not in order. The why of obedience is worship. Well, here's the how, and that's purification. Uh, my mom had a rule. <laughs> I think most parents do this. When us kids were playing outside, wash up before dinner. If you're going to come to the, to the dinner table, it, wash your hands, clean up, get some sit down at the dinner table all dirty. It's appropriate to, to come to the family gathering clean. How much more is it important that we come before the Lord in purity? Now, apparently, Jacob's time in Shechem was a time of, I would just say, moral laxity. And not just for him, but for his entire family. And I think evidence of this, if you look in the last chapter, evidence of this, of course, is Levi and Simeon's complete and absolute lack of repentance for the vengeance that they took on the Shechemites, on Hamor's Hivite clan. They felt completely justified in their revenge. Just look at the previous chapter, 34, chapter 34, 31. They said, well, they treated Dinah like a prostitute. Revenge was entirely justified. Now, somehow Jacob here in, in our text in, verse, in chapter 35, Jacob understands that they had been wayward. Either the Lord instructed them in this revelation to go back to Bethel, or he simply realized it, having heard the voice of the Lord again. So before they returned to Bethel, we see what this says in verse 2. Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Now, no doubt these foreign gods included the ones that Rachel had actually stolen from her father Laban, but I think there were probably others, and they, they had these earrings on and, and different things that clearly represented pagan worship. As they had been dwelling near Shechem, they had probably adopted some of their idolatrous practices, but those practices God should not, God could not allow to come to Bethel. They had no place in the house of God. So we see in verse 4, they gave, this is the family, they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. They buried them. In effect, they, they killed them and put them in the ground at Shechem, leaving all of that, that disgusting idolatrous practice behind. What is true is that the Lord God demands exclusive allegiance in worship, right? The law would later codify this. Exodus 23, you shall have no other gods before me. None, none whatsoever. And that they, these gods, the people, should make no mention of the names of these other gods nor let it be heard on your lips. In other words, they couldn't even mention their names, Exodus 23, 13. And we get this, right? If an adulterous husband 
wants to return home. And as horrific as this illustration is, it would be absurd and morally repugnant for him to bring his mistress with him, right? You can just feel the, make your skin crawl, the offense of that, right? Well, the way the Lord sees it, and, and when you see through the scriptures, the way in which the Lord describes idolatry as unfaithfulness, marital unfaithfulness, that's the image. The way the Lord sees it, even acknowledging these false gods is akin to adultery or somehow delighting in the act of adultery. These false gods, these spiritual mistresses must be renounced and abandoned, killed and buried. Now, if you're a child of God today, it is because you've obeyed the call to receive the gift of a spiritual home through trusting that Jesus, the son of God, has died for you, that he's paid the penalty of your sin on the cross, that he has risen again to assure you of new life. And you know that you belong to him because you know his voice. I'm not saying it's an audible voice, but, but the voice that speaks truth, the voice whose words are life to you to secure you forever, John 6, 68. Jesus said this, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. And following isn't just a direction, but it's moral. My sheep hear my voice, they know me, and they follow me. They do what I do, they don't do what I don't do. They prioritize what I prioritize. And Jesus says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So knowing that you're a child of God, you now orient your life around worship. In John 4, Jesus told the Samaritan woman that God seeks worshipers and worship is exclusively to him, right? God seeks worshipers. God is spirit, says in John 4, 24. And those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. So if you've obeyed his voice, if you orient your life around worship, then it follows. It follows that you'll want to reflect the character of Jesus in, in purity and in holiness. Because God has called you, he has predestined you to be conformed to the image of his son. It says that in Romans 8.29. So then, if you want an eternal home with God, you must heed his call. You must heed his voice. The only way is Jesus, who is the truth and the life as well, John 14, 6. You must trust him. And if then you have heard his voice, then you will orient your life around him in worship and constantly seek to be leaving sin behind, repenting of it, and so in an increasing measure, reflect your character. Let me ask you, is that your desire this morning? Is that what marks your life? Well, second, on Jacob's journey home, the Lord provided protection. It's the second heading, protection. And one of the things that keeps a, uh, a nation, a society civilized 
is how they deal with and protect their citizens, right? They protect them from acts of evil and other dangers. Not all dangers, but many dangers. Now, we, we just take it for granted that on our phones, we can dial 911, right? And we can get the help we need if a fire breaks out or, or if there's a crime in progress, we trust that the police will, or at least they should come. But that, the fact that we have police and fire departments to protect us is an indication that the city cares for its people to some respect. Protection is care. How much more, how much more, how much infinitely more does God protect his own people on our journey home? Now, I'll remind you what happened in the last chapter. I've referenced it already, but you can look back. Simeon and Levi had slaughtered Hamor. Again, the occasion was the violation of, of Dinah, their sister. They took revenge. They slaughtered Hamor. They slaughtered his son, Shechem. That's the region after, uh, he, the, the, nation, the region was named after Shechem. And then they killed every single male in the Hivite clan. They, they entirely obliterated that tribe and they plundered them. They took their stuff. And it was a pure evil act. Pure, that's a contradiction in terms, right? It was a diabolical act of evil. And Jacob's fear as a res result of this, that it would make him stink to the inhabitants of the land, and that as a result of this act of revenge on the part of his sons, that all of the other Canaanite groups might band together and attack him. That was his fear. But what happened? The Lord protected him. Verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. A successful journey. They should have been attacked. Logic would have it. You behave this way, your enemies are going to rise up. But a terror from God fell upon the cities. Again, just keep in mind that, that, that the inhabitants of the land would have been right in, in a sense, logical to deal with the threat of Jacob, to act in such a way they felt their existence, their mere existence was threatened by such a family that would do such a thing. And yet the Lord put terror in them. The Lord prevented that from happening. And it's not because Jacob and his family deserved it, not by any stretch, but simply because God promised it. And think this through, if Jacob's family was obliterated, then in a sense, well, in a complete sense, God's promise would have failed. Now, when Jacob had been fleeing from his brother Esau, he dreamed and he encountered the Lord who made this promise to him. Genesis 28, 15, behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. First time he was in Bethel, that's what he heard from the Lord. So that land was Canaan, that specific location. Again, Bethel, that's where he was told to go. So understand this. As, as a child of God today, if your confidence to stand before God is in Christ, if your confidence to stand before God is the righteousness that he gives to you by nature of his death on the cross, 
imputed to you because you've trusted in what he's accomplished, then be sure of this. God will protect your soul. He will protect your soul and bring you to be home with him. Count on that. But listen, Christian brothers and sisters, the, the greatest dangers we face, they're not physical. Fear of losing your life or disease or wasting away or famine or whatever. Those aren't the greatest things that threaten us. There are far worse things than dying. The greatest danger is the danger of shipwrecking our faith. And there's an enemy who seeks to do that. As Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, he says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not the battle. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And those spiritual forces want to discredit Jesus. They want to steal his glory. But God has given us a spiritual armor to protect us so that he vindicates his own glory and goodness in you. You can count on that. It's true what it says in, in Isaiah 54, 17, no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment this is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. So you can be absolutely confident in the Lord's protection, knowing this, as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now understand what that's saying. Your soul won't be destroyed. Your body may be. Your body may be destroyed. But you will not be separated from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Let's look at the end of Romans 8. Not life, not death not rulers, not principalities. Nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. God will protect you. Well, finally, there's promise fulfilled. It's a simple matter of integrity and faithfulness when you make a commitment that you follow through, right? We get that. It's an essential component of any relationship that we would value. Of course, marriage depends upon it to love and to cherish in sickness and in health till death parts us. Even a work relationship, it's a, it's a simple relationship, but it depends on simple faithfulness. You show up on time. You, get the, you do the job you were hired to do. And when there's that, there's a kind of a comfort, a sense of belonging, a place of safety. Because the one who makes the promise is faithful to do it. Now, since the beginning of time, something that, is, something that is so very foundational to knowing God is that when he makes a promise, 
He keeps it. And as I've been reading through the Bible, I just see this, this overarching theme that it's a kind of a unifying theme of the entirety of Scripture. Seeing the plight of man, God makes promises to him to rescue him from his self-made exile and bring him home. Promise made, promise fulfilled. Now, in our text, we, we see that Jacob finds his way home because the Lord fulfills his promise. Verses 1 through 8 is the narrative of what God said and how Jacob responded, along with there's an additional detail about Deborah. This is Rebecca, his mother's nurse. She died and was buried there. And I take it that we're to assume that she was very old, but just very dear to Jacob's family and had come back with them from Haran. So Jacob is now at Bethel because the Lord promised to return him there. And Deborah is buried there. Again, just a small detail. Now turning to verses 9 through 15. The way I see it, that this is not a new event, but a retrospective, a look back of both chapter 33, 22 to 32, and then before that, chapter 28, 10 through 22. There's a few additional details are included to show, ultimately, and I see this as the purpose of this, to show how God kept his promise to Jacob over the period of upwards of 26 years. Jacob had made a mess of things. But God never failed to follow through in his promise to him. Now, for the studious among us, I realize I'm charting a new interpretive course here. Uh, but follow me on this. Verse 9. God appeared. Now, in your Bible, if you're using the ESV, there's a little footnote there. Footnote offers this alternate reading. Or had appeared. God appeared or had appeared to Jacob again when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. Now, this seems a little out of order. If it's the next event that happens, we, we know that Jacob was called to Bethel from Shechem, not from Paddan Aram. So language doesn't fit if it's a new event, unless you add another word to it, like like. You know, as God appeared to Jacob again, like when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. Again, the way I see this is this is a retrospective. See, the, the, the section began with the Lord reminding Jacob where he came from, right? Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. Again, beginning of the story, when you fled, and now this retrospective. So, so verses 9 through 15 really summarizes the very first time Jacob encountered God at Bethel. That you'll recall if you've read through it. He had that dream of angels ascending and descending. That's Genesis 28.10. But also included in this section is the second time. That's the again of verse 9. That refer, refers to Genesis 32, 22 to 32. That occasion is when Jacob left Laban in Padanaram, and he was anticipating seeing Esau again. So these two events, on his way to Padanaram, on his way back from Padanaram, encapsulating what happened in that 20 years while he was outside of Canaan. So that second time, there Jacob wrestled with God. It was there that his name, he was told that his name would be Israel, one who contends with or strives with God. And he called that place Peniel. Now Jacob's sons had already understood their identity was Israel. We see that back in chapter 34, verse 7. 
So to me, to me, it would be strange that God would again visit Jacob and tell him what he already told him. So again, I see this as a retrospective, kind of wrapping up the, the story. Verses 10 through 12 then reiterates all that the Lord promised so that the reader can be sure that all is now fulfilled. I see this included so that we understand well, God made some promises Sorry, God made promises. All the promises God made to Jacob, he has fulfilled. Verse 10, that the family name from then on would be Israel. It was. Verse 11, that the Lord revealed himself to be God Almighty, El Shaddai. And that's one way that, that the Lord revealed himself to Abraham. So what that does, it connects the promise that he was commanded to be fruitful and multiply. It connects that from Abraham to Jacob. Now here, by the time he's back in Bethel, Jacob has been fruitful. He has multiplied greatly. He now has 11 sons and at least one daughter, probably more. Verse 12, that the land that God gave to Abraham, he is giving to Jacob. Jacob's in the land. He's at Bethel. And note that he has already built an altar, that altar. That's back at verse 7. He's modified the location of that uh, the name of the location to El Bethel, meaning God of, the God, God of the house of God. Again, a fulfillment. And then verses 14 and 15 were reminded that Jacob had initially set up a pillar, not an altar, 29.18, to memorialize the location and called it Bethel. In effect, to remind us how it all began. So here he is. After 26 years, Jacob has come home to Bethel not only to dwell in the house of God, but to dwell there with God. El Bethel, promise fulfilled. Home is where the heart is. And for the believer in Jesus, our hearts are where God is. God has promised to dwell with his people. This is a spiritual reality that was promised to the people of God all the way back at Sinai. And it's still true for us today. Deuteronomy 33 says, the eternal God is your dwelling place. And underneath are the everlasting arms. The Lord is your dwelling place. And effectively, he holds us in his everlasting arms. Now, God made that a physical reality when the Son of God became a man. It's what the prophet Isaiah prophesied and was fulfilled when Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Matthew 1.23 adds, which means God with us. God dwelling with his people. God with us is the eternal word of God as John declared at the beginning of his gospel and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the father full of grace and truth. Now, of course, we know Jesus was crucified, put in a tomb. He was raised on the third day. He showed himself to his disciples over a period of many days and then ascended to the Father in heaven. He did not remain on earth, but he did go to the right hand of the Father.
but he did promise to return so that the spiritual reality of his presence would ultimately be fulfilled in a physical presence forever. Jesus promised in John chapter 14, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Now, that promise that where I am, you may be also, that is yet to be fulfilled. But when that preparation is complete, Jesus will come again and take all who belong to him. He'll bring us to himself that we may be where he is forever. Home in the house of God. Let me ask you, is that your hope? Is dwelling with God a spiritual reality for you today? And I will say this, if you have not found a home in God through Christ as a spiritual reality, if that's not where you are today, I assure you it will not be a physical reality when Christ returns. If you have not found a home with God through Christ as a spiritual reality today, it will not be a physical reality when Christ returns. He will call and only the dead in Christ will rise from the grave. So if you do not delight in God's presence, you will not long for his appearing. But brothers and sisters, if you are in Christ this morning, you are at home in him. That part of the promise has been fulfilled. And in the same way that Jacob, who heard the promise of the Lord, had to wait for the fulfillment to be in the land. And even Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob didn't fully experience the ownership of the land and dwelling in the land in peace. We, like them, must wait for the complete fulfillment of dwelling bodily with Jesus. But until then, we hold on to what we've been promised because God has been faithful to fulfill his promise through the centuries. He has never failed at a single promise. The journey that we're on, the journey that Jacob was on involved obedience. It involved God's protection and the reality of promise fulfilled. And likewise, we're on a journey. We're on this journey home. We're looking forward to the day when, to the, day when the spiritual reality will become a physical one. And, and as we're on this journey, our lives are to be marked by obedience We've first of all obeyed the call to come home as, we, as the Lord has opened our eyes, as the Spirit of God has opened our eyes to see Jesus Christ, the Son of God crucified for our sins. The call to come home is a spiritual call to trust Him. I trust, I hope, I pray that you have answered that call this morning. And having answered that call to be the people that God wants us to be, people that God seeks who indeed worship Him in spirit and in truth, and to be those people whose lives are marked by holiness. 
And along the way, we can absolutely be assured of his protection. As he keeps our souls, even if it costs us our very lives, he keeps our souls for that day when we'll be reunited with Jesus. God has fulfilled his promise to give us eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. And he will fulfill his promise to bring us all the way home. I trust that that is your hope this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful, grateful for the promises that you make and keep. All of them, all of them, Father. None will fail. And that is our confidence before you, God. And while you know our weakness and how we stumble along in this journey, thank you for your grace to protect us. So God, we pray, just keep us, keep us ever focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. The promises in your word, God, keep us faithful to represent you in this world while we wait for his glorious appearing. That day when we'll be gathered at home forever with him. All for the glory of your son, our savior, Jesus, in whose name we pray all these things. Amen.